John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see Me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see Me. So, some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that He says to us? A little while, and you will not see Me. And again, a little while, and you will see Me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you have, like many here and many listening to this this live stream heard many sermons you probably have gotten good at figuring out when the preacher is about to conclude there's something that changes maybe it's a change of tempo or a change of pitch it may get slower or it may get faster or maybe there's a dramatic pause and the pastor looks at the congregation Or maybe there's a summary statement. What we have seen in the whole text is this. And you know that he's about to try to draw it all together. The conclusion is actually very difficult to do well. 
It's sort of like landing an airplane, and there are lots of bad ways to land an airplane. Uh, there is uh, circling around and circling around until you find a place to land, or maybe landing too harshly and slamming down, or maybe twisting the plane because of the turbulence, or this is something that preachers sometimes do that is one of the most irritating ways to conclude a sermon, and that is an aborted landing, where it looks like you're coming in for a landing, you touch down, but then for some reason you take off again and go off on some other tangent. But you always know that the preacher is finished when finally he says, let's pray. That is a, a sign that says that the sermon is over. Now, next week we will hear Jesus in chapter 17 say, let's pray. That's what chapter 17 is. Jesus praying after the sermon. And so what we have today in this text is the conclusion to this, not quite sermon, but this dialogue that he's had with his disciples. His last opportunity to teach his disciples before his death. And so here the conclusion where Jesus draws things together. And you will find, as in many sermon conclusions, that there is some repetition where he is drawing things that he's already said in this final discourse together, and he is bringing them to bear because he is about to leave his disciples alone. And they are about to leave him alone as well. And so he goes, as he has in this discourse, on to teach about the Holy Spirit. And this is where we find that the densest teaching of Jesus about the Holy Spirit in this final discourse. And he says to them in verse 12, once again, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever, whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And that all that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Well, you might say, well, we've heard some of this before. Exactly. He's repeating some of the ideas that He's already given us. And that is that the Holy Spirit takes that which is His that He has received from the Father, and then He gives it to His disciples. And that the Holy Spirit's job is not to glorify Himself, but to glorify Jesus. And Jesus' work is to glorify the Father. But He also gives us some new details about the Holy Spirit's work here. And we need to pay attention to the context in which He gives these details. He says to His disciples, that I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So in the light of the fact that he had many more things to say to those original disciples that they were not able to bear yet, he's going to explain some details of the Spirit's ministry, some of which are unique to their situation. The first thing he says is that he would guide them, the Spirit would guide them, and this translation says, into all the truth. There are a couple of different readings here, and I think it's slightly better the other reading, which is in the truth, in all the truth, although the difference is not that, that big between into and in. But the idea of in the truth is that they're already in the truth, but they need to be guided more deeply into that truth. Not so much that they're out of the truth and now they need to get into it, but they're in the truth, but the Spirit would guide them in the truth, in all the truth. And if you go back to chapter 14, you remember that Jesus said 
that He is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is another way of saying what He said several times, that the Spirit doesn't guide people to Himself. The Spirit guides people to Jesus and to the truth that is in Jesus. Now, the other thing that He says to them here is in verse 13, He says that the Holy Spirit will speak of things that are to come. Speak of things that are to come. Now, that may seem simple enough, but we have to ask ourselves the question, things that are to come, from whose perspective? Because this has given rise to a couple of different interpretations. One interpretation is that things that were about to come for the original disciples. And what was about to happen in the situation of the original disciples? Well, Jesus was going to die, and Jesus was going to rise again, and Jesus was going to ascend to the Father. Those were things that were to come from the perspective of the disciples. Or, it could mean that things are future not only for them, but future for us as well. We could think of things like in some of Paul's letters... In Peter's letters, in, in the book of Revelation, things that are future not only for them, but things that are also future for us. Now, however we come down on this, it doesn't matter a whole lot because both of these things are true. The Holy Spirit did guide them into deeper understanding of the death and resurrection of Christ. And He did guide them to reveal things that are not only future for them, but also future for us. But even though it's hard to decide, I think in the context, it is slightly preferable to take this as referring to guiding them more deeply into what was about to happen. That is, guiding them into more understanding of the death and resurrection of Christ. And however that might be, this is exactly what we have in the New Testament. Think about this situation. Jesus says, I have much to say to you. But you cannot bear it now. If we look at the disciple situation, how much did they understand about the death and resurrection of Christ? When Jesus first revealed it to the disciples, you might recall that Peter took him aside and said, Oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's never going to happen to you. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter because he, he was rejecting the facts of the, that Jesus was going to die and rise again. And so they were, they were still wrestling with the, the facts that Jesus was going to die and rise again. And even in this text, as we'll see as we go on, they were not getting that much of it. And so for Jesus to go on and to explain to them the meaning of His death and the meaning of His resurrection, well, that was beyond them when they weren't even accepting the facts yet that He was going to die and rise again. But let me read you some of the things that these very disciples wrote later. For example, Peter. Peter, the same one who said, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to go to the cross. That same Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's the same Peter who rejected the facts of the death and resurrection of Christ, and now he's explaining the meaning of the death and resurrection of Christ. And what's he saying? That it's the righteous for the unrighteous. It's in order that He might bring us to God, that He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. 
And so Peter is, is going deeply into the meaning of the death of Christ. Where did he get that? Where did he get that understanding? Well, there are two answers. There was a short time between the resurrection of Christ and when he ascended to his Father, when Jesus had the opportunity to explain more about what had happened. But in addition to that, Jesus is telling us where they got that information. The Holy Spirit led them deeply into the truth of Jesus and His death and resurrection. John, the Apostle John, wrote this, "...in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is high-level theology. He is taking the, the knowledge of what Jesus did and He's applying the Old Testament sacrifices of propitiation, of turning God's anger against sin away and satisfying His justice. And He's saying, that's what the death of Christ is. How did John Know that, we might ask. Well, we have the answer. The Holy Spirit led these disciples into all truth. And, and then we have the case of the Apostle Paul, who wasn't even there listening to Jesus in the flesh. He came later to meet Jesus. He wrote things like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 Where did Paul get that? Obviously from studying the Old Testament Scriptures, but how did he know that that verse from Deuteronomy applied to Christ and Christ was taking the curse of the law for us? Where did he get that? Or he also wrote, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not only the fact of the resurrection, but the meaning of the resurrection, that, that Jesus is the firstfruits and all who trust in Him will rise from the dead as well. Where did these get this information? And the answer is, The Holy Spirit led them in the truth about Jesus. And so we have, we have the, the benefit of, of that revelation, of that leading, of that guiding into all truth. We have it in our own hands in the form of the New Testament. Now, Jesus understood that they didn't understand, and they expressed the fact that they didn't understand. Because he had said, I, a little while and you won't see me, and a little while and you'll see me again. That's what he says in verse 16. And the disciples, they turned aside and said, what in the world is he talking about? So we see how little ready they were to understand. He's using cryptic language here. He's saying, I'm going away and you will see me again. And this almost certainly refers to his death and his resurrection, that in a few days... Uh, They wouldn't see Him. In a few days more, they would see Him again. And they connected that with, I am going to the Father. And then Jesus, instead of answering their question of what He meant by that, He explained their reaction. He said to them, I know you're talking about this. And then in verse uh, 20, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and instead of explaining it, He explains their reaction. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So he doesn't say what this means. They weren't understanding even that, that he was going to die and rise. But he says, okay, this is how you will know that this has taken place. Because this will be your reaction. You will have heavy, heavy sorrow. And then your sorrow will be turned to joy. 
So when that happens, when that happens, when you are deeply sorrowful and then your sorrow becomes joy, you will know that what I said would happen has taken place. By the way, notice here a very clear example of how John likes to use the word world. Verse 20, it says, You will be sorrowful. Uh, I'm sorry, before that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And we've seen that many times in the Gospel of John, world refers to sinful sinful humanity in rebellion against God. So, sinful, rebellious humanity will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful. Then he gives an illustration of that. And it's an illustration into which I cannot enter deeply, uh, but many people can. Those who are mothers can understand this. I got to see this as a father, and I got to walk through this with my wife on two occasions when God gave us uh, the birth of our two daughters. But he says in verse 21, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. By the way, here the world, the word world is used in its more common use outside of the Gospel of John as born into this planet. So we see the two different uses of that word world. But this illustration shows us three things. It shows us, first of all, a situation in which there is intense sorrow because of impending pain, and then that sorrow being turned radically into joy. Another thing this illustration points out is the same event causes those two different emotions. The same event, the birth of the child, causes sorrow before it happens, and causes joy after it happens. And another thing this illustration shows us is that the sorrow lasts for just a little while, but the joy lasts for the rest of one's life. How long does a mother rejoice in her son or daughter? As long as they have life together. So it's not a temporary joy, it is a lasting joy. And Jesus says, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen to you. You will be sorrowful, and then you will have joy, and no one can take your joy away from you. That's how deep-seated your joy will be. So you also, verse 22, have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's actually very notorious in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. What characterized, what characterized the disciples before Jesus died and rose again? Well, a number of things. They obviously were faithful. They were with Him for three years. They sacrificed a great deal. But as we've seen, they were often confused, often not understanding, and they were often fearful. And Jesus is about to say that you're about to scatter out of fear. But after Jesus died and rose and sent the Holy Spirit, it's as if they were different people. Their their boldness and their confidence and their faith and their willingness to take risks, but in addition to those things, their joy. Read the Acts of the Apostles. It's remarkable. It's remarkable to find their joy that no one could take away from them. 
Beating wouldn't take their joy away from them. Imprisonment wouldn't take their joy away from them. Persecution wouldn't take their joy away from them. Stoning and killing them wouldn't take their joy away from them. They had a joy that could not be taken away from them. Why? Because Jesus had died and Jesus had risen again. Now, this joy is actually a, a characteristic of the Spirit's work in all Christians' lives. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the second one? Joy. joy. Love. Joy. One of my favorite quotations about joy comes from a book called A Severe Mercy. It's by Sheldon. I've never known how to pronounce his name, if it's Van Aken or Vonaken, but he was a skeptic. And he was at Oxford University and he started having some interaction with a man named C.S. Lewis and they exchanged letters and they uh, talked a lot about Christianity. And he was not yet a Christian. But he was impressed by one aspect of Christianity that he found in Christianity and apparently nowhere else. This is what he said. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christians, against Christianity, is also Christians when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But though it is just, just to condemn some Christians for these things, perhaps after all it is not just, though very easy, to condemn Christianity itself for them. Indeed, there are impressive indications that the positive quality of joy is in Christianity and possibly nowhere else. If that were certain, it would be proof of a very high order. And that proof, along with other proofs, eventually pushed Sheldon over his skepticism and into faith in Jesus. What was one of the strongest things he saw? Joy. What is one of the the greatest testimonies that we can have to the world, no matter what might be happening around us or in us? A deep-seated joy. And what is the the basis of that joy? How can we have joy when, when things are difficult? We can have joy, as Jesus said, because of this one incident, the death, and the flip side of that death, the resurrection of Jesus, which is a complex of two events that go together. And that no one can take away from us. Now, this last part of this section in verses 23 and 24 may be a play on words that doesn't come out in English very well. Because he says here, in that day, in that day, the day of your joy, the day of your rejoicing, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. There are two different words in the Greek language that are translated here, ask. And they could be used synonymously. And it may be that Jesus is using them synonymously here. But it may be that there's a subtle 
distinction between them. In verse 23, he uses the word that is usually word for ask a question. Ask for information. In that day, you will ask no questions of me. You won't be seeking more information. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, and this verb ask usually means ask a petition, to ask for something to be given to you. So it may be that he's playing on these two meanings of the word ask. But he says, in that day, you won't be asking me any questions because you will have your answers answered. Why? Because I've died, because I've risen, because I've given you the Holy Spirit. And you have been guided and are being guided in all truth. But in addition to that, you will ask the Father in my name and he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. And that was, that was true. They had not yet prayed in Jesus' name. They had not yet gone to the Father through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' atoning work had not yet been done. But once He had died, once He had risen, then they would understand that the way that they and we and anyone can get to God, and the only way, is through Jesus and His work on the cross and in the resurrection. He says, Then you will ask, and and the Father will give you. Ask and you will receive. But look at the purpose of that. Look at the end of that verse 24. What's the purpose of asking and receiving? That our joy would be full. So he says, in the day of your joy, you will ask so that your joy may be full. What do we have? Joy upon joy upon joy. And then the last section, and here he's winding down. This is the conclusion to this discourse in verses 25 to 33. Jesus used, as you well know, because we have wrestled with it, we're wrestling with it in this text, Jesus used figurative language, he used obscure language in the Gospel of John, in the other Gospels he used many parables, and he says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that expression, the hour is coming, should remind us, of how John uses that, Jesus uses that throughout this Gospel of John. The hour, what's the hour? The hour of His death, it's coming. And after that, He would drop the figures of speech. He would speak to them plainly. And then He says this, In that day, after My death, in that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say that you will, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. Now, here he says, in that day, the day uh, in which after I've died, after I've risen, you have the Holy Spirit, you will ask the Father in my name. And I will not have to persuade the Father to love you. This is kind of a caricature sometimes of Christianity. That we have an angry, distant Father. And we have a compassionate Jesus who pleads with the Father that He might be merciful to us and and might love us and might be kindly toward us. But Jesus says, that's not how it is. The Father Himself loves you. Who, by the way, sent the Son into the world to save those who believe in Jesus. It was, after all, the Father, for God so loved the world. So it's not that Jesus needs to prevail upon the Father to love us. The Father loves us. And the Son loves us. And the Spirit loves us. God loves us. And there's no division in His love for His people. But He says here in a summary statement, we're getting toward the end, and when you hear a summary statement, 
you know that you're getting towards the end of the sermon. Verse 28, Jesus sums up His whole ministry in one verse. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. There it is. I came from the Father, I came into the world, I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. And the disciples thought, we've got it. Now we've got it for sure. Verse 29, they say, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And this sounds like a great discovery on their part. And in as much as, as it says, it's true what they say here. But Jesus immediately bursts their bubble because he knew that they really weren't getting the depth of what he was explaining. And he says to them in verse 31, Do you now believe? And that could be asked, Do you now believe? Or do you now believe? And then he gives them some evidence that their faith was still a work in progress. He says, Behold, once again, the hour is coming, that same expression, the hour is coming, Indeed, it has come, it is imminent, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. So they're saying, we've got it now, we're really believers now, we're confident that we get this, we understand this, and Jesus says, well, the hour has come when you're about to abandon me, and you're about to leave me alone. But I am not alone, the Father is with me. And this is important in what he just said, because he said the Father himself loves you. So it's not that the Father just abandons the Son to do his work. No, the Father is with the Son, and they're doing this work of salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the final line of this discourse, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. I've told you this beforehand, so that when it happens you may have peace, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then the next words we're going to hear are essentially the, let's pray, because the message is over. The final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And what does he say here? you might notice that the verb tense shifted. And kind of in a surprising way. Because he says, the Spirit will guide you into truth. The Spirit will speak of things to come. The the sorrow, sorrow will, will overcome you. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. And you would think he would say here, take heart. You will have tribulation in the world, but I will overcome the world. But because the hour has come, the hour has already come, it is upon them. He says, I have overcome the world. It is as good as done. He has taken care of the world. And this is the, this, this world, this word overcome. I have conquered the world. I have gained victory over the world. That's what he's saying here. He's pronouncing the victory of a a conqueror, of one who has completely overcome the enemy. But 
What's even more remarkable about this statement was the way he overcame the world. Let me ask you something. Those who try to conquer the world, and there have been a number of those throughout history, haven't there? There have been a number of those who have tried to conquer the world at least as far as they knew it existed. And what did they do to conquer the world? Well, they waged war. And they killed anyone who stood in their path. That's, that's how you conquer the world. You go out and you kill. But Jesus says, I have conquered the world. I have overcome the world. And how did Jesus conquer the world? How did Jesus overcome the world? Not by killing the world, but by being killed by the world. And then, rising from the dead three days later. And that's how he conquers anyone. Not by pummeling us into submission, but he conquers our hearts in the same way he conquered the world, through his love. How does anyone come to to faith in Jesus? Well, we come to faith in Jesus when we understand the good news. And that it is good news about a God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him may not perish, but have eternal life. God conquers the world through the death of His Son. Jesus conquers rebellious humanity by giving His life for all who will trust in Him. What about us? How does He conquer us? Well, He conquers us when we get a glimpse of this, when we grasp what He did in dying and in rising again, and we are overcome, we are conquered by His love. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for coming into our world and conquering our world. And in many cases, conquering our hearts. I thank You, O God, that You you cast down the the obstacles in my heart against you some 40 years ago. And you did that not by, by beating me ruthlessly into submission, but by showing me that you yourself were beat into submission and that you gave yourself for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would give us once again a vision of Jesus, the, the conquering Messiah, who died and who rose again. And that seeing the extent of Your love, O God the Father, O Christ the Son, O Holy Spirit, our guide and helper, that our hearts would be subdued, that our wills would be conquered, and that we might enter into joyful submission to You. And that going out from here, that no matter what we face, that we would be characterized by joy and peace, because Christ has overcome the world. And we pray this in His name. Amen.